From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. I looked at my future and I decided to base my future on the principles of family, faith, and my career. And I made the decision to try to integrate those three things throughout my life. And I feel that in trying to stay true to those principles, it's really served me well in my life. Hi, folks. Today, I'm joined by Paul Schreiber, former president of London Fog. If that name sounds familiar, it should. Paul's my dad. In honor of Father's Day, I thought I'd shone the spotlight on him. And while I may be biased, I can objectively say that he's a seasoned sales executive who eventually rose to take the reins of one of the most well-recognized retail brands of the 90s. Paul's path to the corner office almost got derailed before it started. As a kid, he had plenty of detractors. Ironically, adversity early in life taught him the lessons that would underpin his success as a sales professional and a business leader. We talk a lot today about understanding the buyer journey and creating value for the customer. On today's show, Paul shares a firsthand account of what those concepts really mean. Let's dive into the conversation. Dad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Justin. It's great to be here. I know you're a longtime listener. I, I like to say if I can't get my own dad to listen to the podcast, I have trouble, but it's great to actually be interviewing you today. Well, I must admit it's somewhat of a surprise, but I'm glad to be here with you. Well, you've got a great background. You are a the consummate salesperson, and I often say that uh, I got my break in sales uh, from watching you, so I figured that we better share the backstory with the audience, and I'm really looking forward to getting into the detail. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, jumping in there with you, Justin. It's going to be interesting. Okay. We need to start off, though, before we get into the sales experience, we need to go back in time to when you were a kid. As you know, I'm a big skier. We often go up to Park City and we do skiing up in Park City. The, The thing I remember about Park City, it can get really cold up there. I was up there on one occasion and the ski patrol actually pulled me over and they said, hey, you got to get into the lodge because you got frostbite on your nose. And I didn't realize it at the time. It was about 19 degrees outside. And so I suddenly, this this guy from California realizes how miserable it can be when the cold nips you like that. You also understand how cold it can get in Utah, but for a different reason. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, let me just say, Justin, I think you're a little spoiled in in that approach to being cold. When I was small, we used to sleep on the back porch of our house. And it was an enclosed back porch, but it had no heating. And so it was great in the summertime, but when it got cold, it got cold. And my parents would let us sleep out there, I guess, as long as they thought we could tolerate it and as long as we did tolerate it. And I didn't have a ski pole patrol person to talk to me, but I had a hot water bottle to keep me warm. (laughs) And that hot water bottle would go at my feet. And it was hot to begin with. But when I woke up in the morning, it was ice cold. So 
you would jump out of bed quickly and run into the heated part of the house. Now, my parents didn't let me or my brother struggle with that all winter. So when it got into the deepest of the cold, it, our beds would move, be moved into the dining room area. So we moved from the back porch to the dining room. But that process took time, and it was a lot of blankets and a couple of hot water bottles before then. Well, that's pretty efficient. It, it reduces the commute from your bed to breakfast in the morning. I applaud your parents for the efficiency. <laughs> it worked, believe me. And it didn't take much to get us out of bed. Well, tell us a little bit more about your mom and your dad. What was their background and, and their experience growing up? Well, my dad was born in 1903 and my mother was born in 1910. And I don't think until I really thought about it, it's interesting that generation didn't talk a lot about their experiences and what they went through. And when I looked back on it and did some calculation, I realized that my dad's career, he was right in the middle of the beginning of his career when the Great Depression hit. My, so my dad was 27, my mother was 20. And I can't imagine how difficult that experience was for them. They were living in California at the time, but I think work was tough to get and while they survived, they were married actually in 1937. So they didn't know each other at the beginning of the Depression, married partway through it. And my dad had to go looking for a job, try to support his wife. And by then, my older brother, who was born in 1941. What year did you say he was born? Well, you know, he was born in 1903. And I looked this up because my dad talked about the St. Louis Rapes riots. And I'm I thought he told me he was in St. Louis during that time, but those race riots happened in 1917. So my dad must have been around 14 years of age. And so now I'm thinking that perhaps it was just the traumatic event of those race riots, what he read about them, what he saw in the newspapers about them that affected him so much. Mm -hmm. And it really had an impact on his life in terms of treating everyone as an equal of appreciating people for who they are, not the color of their skin, not the jobs that they have. And my dad conveyed that to my brother and I all his life. So they, uh, your dad ended up coming to Tooele, Utah, not a well-known place, and uh, found a job with the government. Yeah, actually, he went to work. I don't know how he said he found out about a job down in Utah. I didn't know much about it. It was in a little place called Deseret. And they were hiring, the government was hiring. So he got on a motorcycle and, and rode from Twin Falls, Idaho to uh, Deseret and, and was hired by the U.S. government and worked for a while and then sent for his wife and son. And they were housed in some kind of housing, uh, row housing that was set up for the civilian workers that were starting in this munitions and research plant area. That was new for the U.S. government. So you find yourself then in small town in Utah. You had a few reasons that you could have given up early in life. I know that school in particular was a challenge for you. Talk to us a little bit about that experience you had in elementary school. Well, I didn't realize that I had dyslexia and I always had a hard time reading and when I was in the third grade, we were living on, now we'd moved to Tooele Army Depot, 
And I remember the teacher always had me run notes home to his wife because he knew I couldn't read and I couldn't read very well. <laughs> so he, he felt pretty safe in saying anything he wanted to say to his wife and giving it to me, knowing I wouldn't be able to figure it out. <laughs> and I had no idea that that was his reasoning. I just like getting out of class and running uh, across the uh, civilian part of the Army depot and taking this letter to his wife or whatever messages he had. But then we moved to Tooele, Utah when I was in the fourth grade. So we went into a, a new community and now into a small town. And we were kind of outsiders looking in. And my fourth grade teacher was named Mr. Lund. And I don't think he, he didn't know me very well. I didn't know him. And so judgment was made on the ability you showed in class. And I didn't do very well. And I remember the first uh, parent-teacher meeting that we had with my mom and dad and me. And Mr. Lund was trying to be, I guess for him, nice, but he just basically indicated to my parents that I was failing and, you know, he didn't know what the problem was. I didn't seem that distracted, but I just didn't seem to get it. And you're, I think, being kind of kind uh, and diplomatic, but essentially Mr. Lund said, don't set your expectations too high with this guy. <laughs> he doesn't have a lot of potential. He did say that, and I don't remember his exact words, but that was the that was the implication of his discussion with my family. That must have been pretty hard for my parents. All right, so you're the outsider struggling in school. Mr. Lund has already passed judgment on you. Tell me about Mr. Buckingham, a very different character in your life. He was your Little League baseball coach. What role did he play? Yeah, that was Coach Buckingham. He was a great guy. I was left-handed, so I played first base, and they didn't have many uh, left-handed left-handers that were trying out for teams in Twilla. And so I got on this team, McFarland and Hollinger, in Twilla, and I played first base, and I played every game, but I couldn't hit worth a darn. And I don't know if that had something to do with my dyslexia, but it was just re really a struggle, and I would strike out a lot, and I'd be upset. And the coach would be, you know, that's okay, Paul, you'll get them next time. We'll practice on this. And so I would go to every practice and work hard at trying to hit the ball. And um, Coach Buckingham was, um, was I a good people person. He related to young people. He related to teenagers. So he was a totally different character than Mr. Lund. And I got to that point in my time in baseball coming to the end of that little league experience. And of course, there's got to be a game in which you're either going to make all the difference in a positive way or in a negative way. And that happened to me. I was, I was uh, coming up to bat and it was the bottom of the ninth. There, was, there were runners on second and third and I wanted to hit. And I'd started to hit uh, several weeks before that in the games we were playing. And I was feeling good about myself and wanted a chance to succeed. And I could just see Coach Buckingham's mind kind of trying to decide, do I let this kid hit or do I, you know, do I put somebody in there to sub for him? And, you know, my mind might have been going wild. I may not have been his thoughts, but nonetheless, it was one of those experiences where he let me go up and bat and I got a double. We won the game, and it made all the difference in the world for me. He had given me a chance, and 
I hadn't had many successes up till then, particularly in school. And that experience is one that I'll always remember. It's remarkable how one experience like that can really shape a person, contribute to the way they view themselves and the residual impact that they can have years later. I've never forgotten that. And in addition to that, not only did it help to shape your identity, but uh, I would imagine the way that you aspire to treat other people as well. You know, I think uh, because I did have some struggles in my younger years, I had a greater appreciation for other people. And uh, no matter what their circumstances were, I kind of been there and done that and been on that receiving end. So I think it did create a sensitivity in me that a lot of times you don't have, if you don't have those experiences, you can't really appreciate it. Yeah. And so even though I didn't, I was so young, I didn't really realize all the implications of it. It did have a transformational uh, role in my identity. And I am grateful now that I look back on that, those experiences. It really prepared me for other things. Uh, working hard was something I had to do just to be kind of average with everybody else around me. Uh, it paid off in terms of music as I went on. I, I went out of sports and into music, and I just worked hard as I had in baseball. And again, there was a band director who recognized somebody who, through just sheer effort, is is doing a lot better than perhaps some of the best students you might expect to be the, the leaders and the, and the best musicians. And so that prepared me for a success in a musical career in high school from the standpoint of band and, and uh, playing the clarinet. Baseball turned out to be a positive experience. Band was a positive experience. I want to emphasize, though, that for you, it wasn't just about baseball and band. There were some pretty tough, tough spots there as well. Let's talk a little bit about the infamous smelter. <laughs> Most people aren't going to know what a smelter is. So I think you need to start by explaining the concept of a smelter and then tell us about the job that you had there. Well, there was a lead and zinc smelter in the foothills of Tooele, Utah, and it employed a lot of people. And it was a lot of unskilled labor. And I'm sure there was skilled labor in there, but the jobs that I and that people that were substituting for some of the workers up there were mostly going into unskilled um, kind of labor work. It was a dirty job. You had to have coveralls, a helmet, goggles, a respirator. And you were breathing a lot of things that just were not very healthy. And the experiences were somewhat dangerous. It, you know, they didn't really say much to you, but you were working around a lot of equipment that if you got tangled up in it, it would be disastrous. So were you ever around when these kinds of catastrophic accidents happened? Well, one of the things that convinced me that I really didn't want to work there much longer was, was an accident that happened to a young man about my age. We were I wasn't in the same immediate area as him, but we were doing about the same jobs, which was shoveling um, shoveling dirt and mud and ore onto the conveyor belt that had spilled off as it was going across large tracks of uh, conveyor belts. And he got his sleeve caught in the conveyor belt and could not get untangled. They couldn't turn the belt off soon enough and it ripped his arm off. And I don't think until then I had a recognition or a realization of how dangerous things can be and life can be. And um, it was it was a difficult time for everybody that was around that area, for everybody at the smelter. 
kind of made you realize that you couldn't take anything for granted and had to be careful. So coming from that kind of a background, I can see why sales as a profession had its allure, certainly not the same kinds of occupational hazards <laughs> that you were used to. How did you break into sales in the first place? I was finishing my career at the smelter for, for, for the reason I just explained. Plus, I'd recently just been married. She was in retailing already. And so for one of our summer experiences, we worked and, and hired on at ZCMI in Salt Lake City to work retail. And I had never done that before. And it was just much more alluring than what I'd been at at the smelter. So I wore my sports coat and tie and white shirt. And uh, I was sent to the sportswear department, uh, sporting goods department, which I had no experience in. And all of a sudden, I found myself selling baseballs and footballs and basketballs and golf clubs. And although I knew about sports, I wasn't really that engaged in it. So I I had to really buckle down and, and learn how to how to make money for the company. And um, so I, I just primarily started off by watching other people. And then I read a book on selling because I'd had no selling experience by Frank Fetcher on how I became a success from a failure in selling. Went to the library, picked up the book, read it. And then I came back and applied some of his ideas to what I was doing. And one of the points that he had made was to ask for the sale. And I noticed all my colleagues were just going up to customers and, you know, striking up a conversation, giving them information. And then right at the end, when the customer was interested, they'd say, well, if you have any more questions, give me a call. I'll come over and help you. And so instead of doing that, I closed the sales, or at least I tried to. And I would say, hey, why don't we write this up? You need any golf balls? And I was going after that um, golf business because it was the biggest ticket item in the department. And by the end of the summer, I had sold more golf clubs and accessories than anyone in the department. So Frank's uh, ideas paid off. You know, going back to the experience you had when you were younger, obviously you struggled in school, but you learned the value of, of hard work. And I see some threads coming through into that first sales experience where you were out there hustling, you were trying to learn the business. And in the end, that's really what distinguished you. Well, and I think that's true in life. And you're right. Those early experiences were hard. And I had to try to figure out every way I could just to get by and to keep up with the rest of the class. And um, in many ways, it just helped me do that. But as I, I, what I found out, when you get out into life a little bit, People have a tendency a lot of times to just kick back. And that's not what I had experienced all through my life up to that point. So I, I think you're right, Justin. Those early experiences were positive in terms of the kind of maybe just extra little push it gave me to try to be better and do better. After that experience selling at ZCMI, you ended up working in retail, Emporium, and then at Mervyn's. You weren't selling, though, in that situation. You were on the buy side. And that really was a fateful decision. Talk a little bit about why you decided to join that side of the business and some of the things you learned. Well, I liked retail. I liked being around customers. I liked trying to sell them. I appreciated the opportunity to uh, excel and to and to have that experience. So I had kind of this experience that was really positive for me in the retail environment. 
And I also observed that the kind of the king of the hill for each department was the buyer of the department. And it was an interesting job. It was a fun job. They got to travel. They would come and work on the floor a little bit. They would get to know what was going on. At least the good buyers did that. And so those were my retail selling experiences. And when I graduated from college, I was hired on a training program uh, with the Emporium Capwell to become a buyer at uh, that store. And I was there about two years and the first buying opportunity that was offered to me was buying a buyer in the fabric department. And, you know, everybody basically turned their nose up at that opportunity. And I had no idea even what a fabric department did or was. But I also found out nobody else did either. And that turned out to be a real advantage because I could do almost anything in my department and nobody Nobody knew what I was doing or cared. All I cared about was the bottom line. And so as I really got into the department and worked in the department to try to figure out what it was and what it was all about, I became kind of a salesman on the floor myself. So within a year, I had one of the highest profit departments in the store. I think the Emporium realized that they didn't want to lose me. So they tried to offer me a more important buying position. But I left and went to Mervyn's because I saw that as a future of of the business. And within a couple of years, I found myself as a buyer in the outerwear, sweater, active wear, and swimmer department. So I was buying all those those items. And the fabric buying job, it helped me a great deal because I understood fabrics now and I knew what to look for and, and what it was and what it meant. Typically on the show, we talk to people that are from the tech industry. But what I find fascinating about some of the things you're describing is the way that the hallmarks of success translate. This idea that you can take a different approach and discover new ways to drive profitability, to drive sales, this willingness to go outside of the box and as a result of trying something new, demonstrate that there's new possibilities out there. And that's something that's applicable in retail. It's applicable in tech. That's a universal principle. That's true. And I think it's true in the trajectory of my career because I had experiences that seemed one seemed to build on the other. Who would have thought that a fabric buying job that nobody wanted would help me in my next position? Because now I understood fabrics better. I could I could better gauge what I was buying, whether it was good quality, not good quality, what somebody was telling me was this or that. I knew it because I knew fabrics. And that translated into my next job at Mervyn's. And that also translated in my job following that. So one build upon the other throughout my entire career. That's Paul Schreiber, former president of London Fog. When we come back, Paul will talk about why his experience buying fabric for a department store was a game changer when he moved into sales. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Paul Schreiber, former president of London Fog. Most people agree that successful salespeople are passionate about their customer, but are they passionate enough to put their own job on the line? Well, if you're Paul, the answer is yes. Let's get back to the conversation and hear how he made some controversial moves that ultimately paid off.
Yeah, let's talk about that next job. You went to work for Pacific Trail. You were selling jackets wholesale to the retailers. Tell me a little bit about what life was like as a salesperson working for Pacific Trail. Well, I made that transition from buying to becoming a wholesaler and selling to buyers because although I liked the buying responsibility and opportunities and travel it offered me, I didn't like the time that it required. Not only was there a lot of traveling, but you had to work every holiday. You had to work in your departments a lot, or at least I did, because I couldn't do my job well unless I knew what was going on right with the customer. But it took up all my time. And I really wanted to spend more time with my family. There was you and three other brothers. And so I wanted to enjoy some of that experience. Wholesale offered me that opportunity because you worked really hard several seasons of the year, but you had a lot of downtime. And so that offered me not only an opportunity to make more money, but an opportunity to have a great deal more freedom. So I started to look for a company that would uh, have an opening in that wholesale area. Pacific Trail was a company I was buying from as a buyer. I approached them and told them I was interested in coming to work for them. I loved out of wear. And um, they had an opening shortly after my initial conversation with them. We had a few interviews. I went to work for them, kind of took a step down and became a salesman. But it offered me a lot of opportunity to use what I'd learned in buying to translate that into selling to those same retailers that I once was. So I had an opportunity and experience that a lot of my fellow salesmen with Pacific Trail, and I found out around the industry, had never had. They'd gone directly into selling from school or wherever they came from. And I had built this junior part of my career in the retail arena. So I knew what that was all about. And it was a a smooth transition. So you would be on the road early in the morning with a station wagon full of jackets. You'd call on these small retailers. You took a little bit of a different approach as you sold to these individuals. Can you talk a little bit about how you changed things up versus your predecessor who was calling on the same accounts? Well, my predecessor had been very successful and I kind of inherited his territory because he became the national sales manager. And so I took over his territory. And as I went around to some of the stores that he had sold, particularly the smaller stores, I I found out that he, in many cases, had just oversold the stores. He had and sold them product that was uh, somewhat selling for them. But when I went into their back stock rooms, they had way too much inventory for the size of their stores. And that really bothered me because I'd never been one to mislead either my customers or the people that I worked with or worked for, or or my whole life had been one of kind of trying to deal from a, a, a position of honesty and I was, I was really disturbed by what I saw that Chuck had done. So when I went into my retailers, I had to initially uh, kind of encourage them to buy less. And in some cases, not to buy product that they had been buying in the past because they already had a supply that would last them for another year, year and a half. And so initially, I took some hits in my selling to these retailers. But I started to build a business and develop a trust with the retailers that If I recommended something, they would do it. And we would together see the results of the success that they had. And I carried that into the department store arena as well. And uh, and I had a successful territory. 
and I enjoyed the job. And I think I enjoyed the job so much because I felt a sense of self-satisfaction at what I was doing was making a difference for the people I was working with. And that was satisfying as well as financially, it was positive also. Because of your background as a buyer, you were able to recognize those issues with inventory and really could empathize with those buyers because that used to be your job. I knew how hard it was for a buyer to be successful. And I knew the pressure, particularly from a, a, a larger department store arena, but even from a um, uh, small store that uh, where an individual was just trying to make a living, how important it was to, to be successful and to have help in being successful. And so I think my philosophy was that to provide, to, to try to provide what that retailer needed. And it was different in, in most of the circumstances. You had, you had to adapt your selling to the needs of the customer. And that worked out well for me and for them. Well, I have a couple of memories from that, that era. Obviously, I had a different point of view. I was probably 11 or 12 at the time. The first was that there were, there were certainly more than one occasion when you'd be up and on the road at three or four in the morning to get to your accounts. In hindsight, I recognize you probably could have gone the day before, stayed at a, at a motel and, and made, the, made the sales call. I think that probably had something to do with the fact that you wanted to be home at night. But then there were always those times when you would take my brother, my brothers and I on the road with you, and you always tried to work something in that we would enjoy. So we would go to the amusement park, we'd go see a movie. And I remember thinking to myself, my dad has the best job ever. He goes and sells a couple of jackets and then he hits the roller coasters. <laughs> you know, I felt the same way. I mean, I loved the work. I was, it was independent as long as I, I made the bottom line and was contributing to my company's success. They didn't care what I did or how I did it. So I could build my territory around those things that were important to me. And it was great to take you guys with me. First of all, I wasn't by myself and I had, I had some guys to, uh, to keep me company. And so there was this kind of this ideal situation, kind of at a time that probably doesn't exist anymore when you could, you could make it on your own and be on your own and do what you wanted. And as long as you applied yourself, you could be successful doing that. And a lot, to be honest with you, a lot of salesmen had trouble with the job because they could not discipline themselves to do what they had to do when they had to do it. But if you build around that, you could have a great, uh, a great time. And, and it was a lot of fun. Probably one of the most fun working, uh, fun, I guess that's the right word. It was one of the most satisfying times in my life in terms of experiences of um, independence. So that was the early to the mid 80s. All good things must come to an end. That industry was being turned on its head and the large department stores were, were moving in. Can you talk a little bit about the shift in the industry and how you personally responded? Well, the shift in the industry just started to accelerate. Department stores have been around a long time, but they had now gone into shopping malls and were moving into smaller communities. Big box stores were coming in. Walmart would move into a community and wipe out all the small businesses in an area. And when I first went with Pacific Trail, we had probably, we weren't a big company, but we had probably 80 to 100 salesmen nationwide. 
And we went up to a sales meeting one year. They took a picture of all of us. We were on a staircase in a hotel in Seattle. We were all kind of lined up on each step. And my partner, Jeff Monson, had kept that picture on his desk. And as this transition started to take place from large retail companies eating up the smaller companies, and then even the large stores starting to shrink their buying staffs and moving from regional buying staffs to more national buying staffs, the industry started to dry up not only from a retail standpoint, but a wholesale standpoint. And every time we lost a salesman, my buddy Jeff would take a little yellow sticker and put it over this guy's face. And when he started to do this, there were maybe six or seven or eight yellow stickers on there. And within a matter of, gee, a short amount of time, less than two years, I looked at his picture one day and like three quarters of the sales staff was gone. And little yellow stickers were appearing more and more on them. And I realized that I had to either move up in the business I was in, or I had to move out and into some other occupation because it just wasn't going to be around in another few years and a shorter amount of time than, than I had even anticipated. So I started looking for first opportunities with my, in my company for management positions that would put me over a broader area rather than just California where I was based. Again, I'd had good retailing experiences. Pacific Trail liked me. And when a regional manager position came up because that person had moved up to the national position, I was hired as the regional manager for Pacific Trail. And I covered not only the West Coast, but all the way back through the Midwest into Des Moines, Iowa, all the way back. That was the West Coast region. So I covered a big area. But that's how much things had shrunk. You didn't need that many people anymore. We had a East Coast and a West Coast uh, regional rep. And I was a West Coast and covered three quarters of the country. And then from there, you went on to become the national sales manager. The industry is shifting. It's always a challenge to get to the key decision makers. You had to continue to innovate as well and figure out how to get the job done. Can you talk a little bit about some of the strategies that you used once you became national sales manager to crack those big accounts? Well, after I became national sales manager, I had to move from California, where I had the regional position and maintained my base, to Seattle, Washington. And when I got into that position, one of the problems we were having as a company was getting our message out to the key decision makers in these big retail stores. And more and more of what was happening is the buyer and even the merchandise managers or the buyers were becoming less um, willing to take any risks and less willing to make changes or to take chances in order to increase their businesses. And we were having trouble getting past that level of management into initiating ideas and, and, and concepts that we thought would be very successful for them as well as them for us. And so I started to call on presidents of these department stores and introduced myself, and I was surprised that I got through to them quite easily. And I told them who I was and told them that our company had some ideas that would be an increase in business for them and also for us. But if they would give us a chance to make a presentation to them, let me bring my merchandising and design team with me and the salesmen in that area. And they put together on their side a management team that went all the way down to the buyer 
we would present to them that some ideas, some ideas that would make them money. I didn't have a problem with getting into that level of management. And that started to work for us. And we, uh, at that point, had been merged with uh, London Fog Industry. I'm not sure what they were doing on that side, but for us, we were becoming more successful. Our business was increasing, and it was a really good time for us in about 1996 to 1998. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. There's a great series called Horatio Hornblower, and it's about this seaman. He starts off as a midshipman, and eventually he becomes the admiral of the the entire British fleet. And each book is about a different promotion, but it talks about how he takes the experience from the previous year or two and rolls that into his current experience and continues to parlay that. I was thinking about that as you're describing your trajectory. You started off selling fabric, bolts of fabric, and now here you are, national sales manager for Pacific Trail, using all the knowledge that you you gleaned from selling fabric, using all the knowledge as a buyer at Emporium and Mervyn's, using all the knowledge selling to individual mom, and, and, and it just continues to get bigger and bigger, but you're able to draw that in. And now you're calling on the presidents of department stores, and you're offering these very novel solutions to help them solve the problems that they have? Well, it was, again, a positive experience. And it seemed it seemed so natural to me from the standpoint of, you know, the solution shouldn't have been that unique. But for whatever reason, not for whatever reason, I think there was a, a legitimate reason there. You just found out the needs of the retailers and found out who you had to reach out to in order to get their attention. And once we kind of figured that out, we were having great success. And we were offering a product that wasn't that widely distributed in the department store arena as well. A rugged outerwear brand, Columbia was still quite, you know, they were had their own stores selling. They weren't selling department stores at that time. So there wasn't an outerwear, rugged outerwear brand that had that much competition in what we were doing. So it was a natural fit for us. You mentioned London Fog. Can you talk a little bit about who London Fog was, what that brand represented, and how London Fog and Pacific Trail came together? You know, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a great story because London Fog started long before our company did. It started in 1923, and they had built their business, particularly in the raincoat uh, arena early in, in its career. And by the mid-60s, early 70s, London Fog was selling two-thirds of the raincoats in the United States. And they went in from the raincoat arena to uh, outerwear as well, but it was more of an urban brand of outerwear. So it it was a spinoff of what they were doing in the uh, raincoat business. So they kind of represented a, a dress casual outerwear brand. Pacific Trail represented a rugged outdoor brand. London Fog, after the 70s, had gone through some management changes and they were public, then they went private. Then they went public again. And in doing that, they had accumulated a lot of debt and the company had lost its focus. And so it went from this most recognized brand in the United States and even was in the 90s to a brand who was starting to struggle because they had so many internal turmoils. And they uh, had proposed 
our company was a privately owned company. And in 1992, the ownership sold Pacific Trail to a holding company. The holding company got together with London Fog. London Fog was a uh, a large volume company, but had made no money. They were in the red. And Pacific Trail was a small company that had no debt and great profits. And so this holding company sold Pacific Trail in a merger with London Fog. And we kind of kept the company separate. We were on the West Coast. London Fog was on the East Coast. But we all reported now in the corporation of uh, London Fog Industries. You actually ended up going on to become the president of London Fog. There were a lot of challenges that you inherited. What was your formula to turn London Fog around? Well, when I went into that that position, London Fog was in chaos. Uh, Pacific Trail was still doing quite well and, and basically carrying the corporation. London Fog had created a debt of $125 million for the corporation. Outlet stores were just bleeding money. And that wasn't my major focus. But my major focus was to try to reposition the brand and to try to increase the revenue of London Fog to where we started to make some money rather than just continue to lose money. And when I was asked to be president, I moved my family and I from Washington. It was basically my wife and I then, all your brothers had graduated from school. And we moved back to New York City in 1998. And the first six months of that job was continuing to try to reduce expenses. And so it was a really difficult time. We had to go through and even eliminate more people in the company from sales to merchandising and try to get the expenses as low as we possibly could. And at the same time, I hired a new marketing director with the president of the corporation, Bill Dragon, approving that hire out of New York. And she and I had made the decision to try to reposition a brand by producing an advertising campaign that showed a younger customer and something that was more relevant for the customer in that time frame of 1999 through 2000, 2001. And the younger customer had a lot of disposable money, but they weren't buying London Fog. So our first idea was to try to reposition a brand through a younger advertising campaign and then to go to the retailers, show them this change in London Fog and get their support for what we were doing because the brand was still well known throughout the country. Going back to the solution that you pulled together, one of the things that stood out is you had a talented partner, merchandiser that came together. You guys had a strategy, but you realized that ultimately to make it work, you had to bring the retailer in to the conversation. You were bringing them in and saying, we want to be, we want to build this partnership with you. That was our approach. And I think we, we got some initial success. As you look back across the arc of your career and, and more generally your life, if you had to nail it or boil it down to one thing, what is that one thing that you feel has made the biggest difference for you? Well, when I was young and in my beginning journey, I would say the one thing that I did that I think made a difference for me was I looked at my future and I decided to base my future on the principles of family, faith, and my career. And I made the decision to try to integrate those three things throughout my life. And when I look back now on over 50 years of those experiences, 
I have a greater appreciation for having done that. And I feel that in trying to stay true to those principles, it's really served me well in my life. And I feel a great sense of peace when I look at the results I achieved. So I would say that one decision early in my life made all the difference to me that I can look back on now and and feel really good about it. You know, I remember going to work with you on one occasion. I was probably 12 or 13. And we were coming out of your office. There was a security guard seated at the door. You went up and talked to him. You knew his name. You knew what was going on with his family. Well, at that age, I figured my dad must have been the most important guy in the building because he knew the person with the gun and the badge. (laughs) And I assumed that the person with the gun and the badge was the boss of everything. So I was very impressed that you were on a first name basis with the security guard. Obviously, now that story takes on a very different meaning. And I recognize somebody who cared even about the security guard and not, not just a token hello, but was really interested in what was going on with them. And that to me is, is something that stands out in your life, a, a level of compassion and interest in other people that also seems to really have fueled a lot of the success that you had. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you, Justin. I I think that it never hurts to take people at face value and give them the opportunity to um, show who they really are. And you'll find out soon enough that they aren't what they represent themselves to be. But you're never going to go wrong in trusting, uh, trusting in other people and sizing them up quickly, but giving everybody an opportunity. Well, it's been a great conversation. Thanks so much for taking us on a stroll through your career and for the wisdom and advice that you've shared. Thanks, Justin. It's been uh, a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit people.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.